ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Diane Lupi grew up traversing this vast country with her parents in the 50s and 60s and the family eventually settled in a town outside Perth. Diane entered her first rodeo event at the age of 11, riding on a potty calf. Diane loved horses and so she became a show jumper and a bull rider, climbing onto the back of a bucking bull and hanging on for five, six, seven, eight seconds before being flung up into the air and then crashing onto the dirt. Bull riding is a crazy, brave business. There were never any serious injuries for Diane, but the years of competition and a surgical mishap have taken their toll on her body. But Diane has her own method of managing any fear she might be feeling, a method she's had to lean on time and time again in a life filled with danger and drama. Hi, Di. G'day, Richard. How are you, mate? I'm well. I feel like I should call you Danger Woman throughout (laughs) this this conversation. When you were a kid, I mentioned there at the start, your family were ranging all over Australia from Mount Isa to Mount Gambier to Sydney through Alice Springs across to WA. Why did the family move around so much when you were a kid? Dad was a civil engineer and he worked at uh, different mining towns throughout Australia. So we were always in the old vanguard travelling from place to place. We never actually stayed in one place for more than two years in our life. For us, it was just the norm. I've seen quite a few outback towns in Australia, but I've never been to Whittenoom where the family settled for a while, and the reason is because it's a closed town these days. You you did live in Whittenoom for a while. Isn't that the asbestos town, Di? Yeah, it is, Richard. Um, We actually lived out in the settlement, which was seven miles out of town, and every mile there was a crossing uh, with a gorge. My brother, my two sisters and myself, we used to walk to the closest gorge to the settlement, which was about a a mile away. And uh, a lot of time we didn't have shoes on our feet. And uh, it was so hot that the road had blister and you'd be throwing your towel down and walking on your towel and then picking it up and then throwing it down again and walking on because it was so hot. (laughs) But it was was beautiful. It was um, a fabulous place to explore. There was always gemstones and crystals and tiger eye, which is actually fossilised asbestos. It was a great adventure. Was there much asbestos floating around in the air at the time though? Uh, Mum used to pick Dad up from the mines every afternoon and uh, there were big slag heaps of asbestos We used to throw it, go and play in the slag heaps and throw it over ourselves like it was snow. So, Do you or any other members of the family have asbestosis as a result of that? Not not as yet, but um, they say it can hit you 50 years later or whatever. But I was actually told that it was more the finer sheeting of asbestos that is really dangerous, more so than the actual raw fibres. You mentioned your dad there. What kind of a man was your dad? Dad was a pretty tough man, um, hard and sometimes brutal. But dad, dad was a result of what he'd been through in the war and um, his upbringing. So, you know, you've got to take all that into account as well. 
Did he have something like what we'd call PTSD? Yeah, he, he used to shake really bad, like shell shock. Hmm. Uh, his hands would be shaking all the time, but he always spoke harshly and very tough. You'd never be game to back answer him because he'd just knock you down. He he had his favourites in the family and uh, I wasn't one of them. <laughs> so. How different was your mum compared to him, though? Mum was... She tried really hard to to be the 50s wife. That was traditionally, you know, you meet the husband at the door and you hand him his slippers and you wait on him hand and foot. But mum used to be a Dominican nun before she met dad. A nun? Yeah, and um, she got out of the convent. Uh, she was in Mossvale and um, she... She was washing up um, cups, uh, teacups and that in a bowl one day and she dropped a teacup and they made her spread, lay spread, face down spread eagle on the floor and say Hail Mary's for two hours. And while she was face down, she thought this can't be right and that's what motivated her to leave the convent before she took her final vows. So she was in there for nearly two years. When she left the convent, she only had one dress and one old pair of shoes and she got a job in a um, picture theatre as a usher. Then she did that for a little while and with the first paycheck she went out and bought herself one new dress and a new pair of shoes and she said she felt like she was the richest person on earth. So she left the convent because of an insane act of you know, stupid cruelty and punishment and then she married this traumatised discipline freak. Yeah. How, did she know what she was getting into when she married your dad? No, mum, mum didn't know anything because um, mum was really naive. Mum didn't have any idea of how people had babies or um, she knew nothing about an intimate relationship. One day she was on a bus with Dad and she was reading a book and she said, hey, Digger, what's what's a harlot? And Dad's going, shh, shh, shh. And she's going, no, no, what's a harlot? And he's trying to, trying to shut her up because back in those days it was sort of a word that was unspoken of in public. So she got into marriage without any idea of what, what sex was about? Yeah, no. It was explained to her and she couldn't believe people could actually get that close. <laughs> and uh, she actually wore six pair of undies on the <laughs> night of a marriage. It's quite funny, really, when you look back on it. But Mum was always very, um, how can you put it, Dad was the boss and whatever he said was what, what went. And it must have been pretty frustrating for her too to have four kids under five years of age and with the family moving around all the time as well. Yeah. There's a side, side story to your life. It's just a little side detour that could have been, may have been catastrophic. Tell me what happened when the family was going from place to place, driving through the Simpson Desert on your way to Alice Springs at one time. An axle broke on Dad's trailer with our gear in it and we all went racing past us in the, in the desert and it was right on dusk. And it was really cold as well. We all had to get out of the car to see if we could find the wheel, where the wheel had gone. 
Anyway, um, we found it and uh, Dad and Rob decided to stay with the trailer and he said to Mum, you and the girls go into Alice Springs and then um, get help and come back for us. Was it dark by then? Yes, it was. I must have been about three years of age, three and a half years of age. I I still remember it really vividly, though. And there was a a car pulled over on the side with its blinkers going or lights flashing on and off. There was no such thing as flickers in that stage. They had the little arm that used to come up to the out of the side, but its lights were flashing. So Mum pulled over and she stopped the car and then a man got out of the, this other car and started to walk towards us. And what did he look like, Don? Well, he had grey hair. He had um, a sort of like a beardy face and I was sitting next to the window of the car where he was where the same on the left-hand side where he was coming towards the car and he had something in his hand. Um, I'm not really sure whether whether it was um, like a hammer or a gun or what it was, but uh, he walked up to the window and he started punching the, the window next to where I was sitting trying to get in and... Um, Mum's locked everything and panicked and tried to start the car and flooded it, but she finally got it going and then she took off and we got into Alice Springs and daylight the next day. She went and told the police and the police thought that it could be the man that did the sundown murders back way back then. That was 1957, the sundown murders, and, and that was a case where three bodies were found in December 1957, Sundown Station it was in northern South Australia, and the police thought that that might have been the the perpetrator at the time. Yeah, they they did. Um, so I didn't hear much about it after that, but I know um, Mum got help and they went back to, to help Dad and uh, Rob. But in between time, when Mum took off, he must have still been flashing his lights and Dad saw the lights flashing and thought Mum must have broken down. So he picked up the toolbox and he walked three miles to get to Mum thinking it was us and uh, it turned out that he just got really close to the car and the car took off. So he had to turn around and walk back with a full heavy toolbox and um, then when he got back, he sat down and he got bitten on the bum by a scorpion. So it wasn't really it wasn't really their day, was it? How long did he have to wait for before help finally came to reach him? Mid-morning the next day and he was very, very sick when they got there. So tell me, Di, what was the first time you fell in love with horses? I loved horses from the moment I saw them at Mount Isa when the Leichhardt River flooded and uh, we took a drive down and we saw these brumbies galloping down near the river. And um, I, just, I just had this uh, connection and love that that's all I ever wanted. And then one day, uh, one night we got home from the BSD, which was a pre-picture theatre for the mine workers. The light was on at home and I remember Dad going off at us because... Someone left the lights on. Who did it? And, you know, he, he was pretty grumpy. And we went inside and it was Mum's dad 
that was in there and uh, I'd never seen him before. And he sat me on his knee and he, he used to have horses and he sat me on his knee, which was something I wasn't familiar with any kind of close contact and, and caring contact with a man and uh, said one day he'd get me a white elephant so I'd be able to wish for anything I wanted and what would I wish for? And I said, a horse. So when did you start seriously getting into riding? What was your first experience of that? We moved up to Kalamunda and then they built a house up there. We saw these horses that were loose on the side of the road, my brother and I, Rob. We decided that while Mum and Dad were in the house, we were going to go for a walk to where the horses were. And that's what we did. It was probably about um, half a mile away. Um, And then we followed the horses. They started walking and we followed them and they went back to their paddock. So we opened the gate and let them in. Then we went and into the paddock as well. And Rob and I climbed a tree and we're sitting on one of the branches of the tree. And um, these horses sort of walked walked underneath and were standing underneath the tree for some shade. Rob said to me, you know, do you want to have a ride? And I said, yeah, sure do. So we actually dropped onto the horse's back from the branch. What? How Uh, old were you when you did this? Oh, I was probably about 11. And how much did the horse like you dropping out of a tree onto its back like that? Well, it didn't like it at all because (laughs) it was unbroken. We didn't realise this, so it started bucking and threw us off and we're laying on the ground and groaning and uh, Rob goes, Diane, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I think so. And he said, move. And then I started screaming when I tried to move and he said, oh, no. I said, my ankle, on my ankle, I can't move. So he got a bit of binder twine that was on the fence and he wrapped it around the horse's neck and put me up on another horse to lead me back home because I couldn't walk. As he's taken me out of the top gate, where it was it was a gravel road and it had like a dead end to it on the left of us. So he's gone up to the right leading this horse and then all of a sudden this horse bolted up a driveway and I'm being young and, and um, not obviously being able to ride or anything. Uh, I know I was screaming or, you know, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> and, and it ended up, I stayed on it and it ended up stopping at a fence. So my brother came and got it and started leading me down the driveway again. But then it broke away when he tried to lead it to the left it broke away and started galloping back towards its paddock. So it took off with you on its back with a busted-up ankle. Yeah. What are you doing, hanging on to the mane then or something? Yeah, you? I was just hanging on to its mane. And I was, I was really frightened and I thought, I'll jump off. So when it got near the gravel, I jumped off and I wiped out big time. What do you mean, wiped out? I'd never, ever jump off another horse that was galloping because uh, I, instead of rolling or, or getting thrown, I basically just went splat. So I really got hurt. 
people that owned the house that from the paddock must have got home because there was no one home before that. And uh, they've taken us back to where mum and dad were building and took me home. And um, then I got, you know, a bit of a, well, not just a bit, but I got revved up big time from dad and told I deserve everything I get and um, taken to hospital, so I had a busted ankle. So you'd had this terrifying experience and you'd busted your ankle. Mm. Why didn't that put you off horse riding at that point? I just I just loved them. I just had a passion for them and that's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Anything on four legs, I just wanted to hop on and ride. So I mentioned there at the start you went to your first rodeo, competed in your first rodeo at the age of 11. Mm. What happened that day? The lady that... I met at the poultry farm. Her name was Liz Johnson. She was a bit of a cowgirl herself and um, she asked me if I wanted to go to Peaceful Valley Rodeo and I said, oh, I'd love to. And she said, Diane, do you want to go in the potty ride? What's the potty ride? Uh, like a calf ride, but bigger than calves. Right, and is it a race or is it like a just, no, just hang on? No, it's just, uh, just hang on. <laughs> <Right>. just <laughs> Hang on to a potty calf, right? Yeah, yeah, they just put a rope on it and you put your hands in the rope. and <laughs> So it's like a kid's, ra- a kid's radio event. Yeah. I had really good grip with my legs and I got really long legs. Ah. Uh, so what were you thinking and feeling when you got on the back of that potty calf? I loved it. I, I had a bit of adrenaline rushing and I loved it and I stayed on it. It was easy for me to stay on it. And where did you land in that event? First. You won? Yeah. But when they had <laughs> us lined up to, to give us our prizes, they asked me what my name was because we only had a number before that, the, you know, all the kids. And I've always been tall and skinny, so... They asked me what my name was and I said, Diane Lucas. (laughs) My maiden name was Lucas. Loopy's my married name. And um, they said, are you a girl? And I said, yes. And then they they said, we can't give you the prize because it's a boys' potty ride. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, I, I felt a bit disappointed, but I was still really happy with my effort of staying on and doing it. So, and then they had this discussion, the judges were having this discussion of whether I should get first prize or not, which was a little, like, eight-inch trophy western saddle on a stand, all all embossed. The judges didn't really want to give it to me because it was a boys' potty ride, but then there were a couple of older cowboys on top of the shoot uh, gates and they said, give it to her, she had the best ride. So I got this trophy saddle and it was the first time I'd ever won anything. So you were getting better and better as a, as a rider all this time. But how are things at home for you? Pretty, pretty rough. Um, Dad didn't like me and he made it obvious all the time that I was an accident and uh, I shouldn't be here and, uh, um, yeah, I, I just wasn't wanted. I'd go to bed and I'd be sobbing my eyes out, you know, when you can feel the tears, you might not know, but feel the tears in the back of your throat as as you, because you're crying and sobbing that much. And mum used to come in and comfort me and tell me it was all okay and she loved me. And so mum, mum balanced things out a lot. I was probably 
always really stubborn and really determined. So I never, I never let it stop me. Um, and we had, we had to be home by five o'clock every afternoon. And if you didn't, you'd get a flogging. I remember this day I went up the road and then where these horses were and these girls were there and um, I actually uh, was, was just helping them do a few things in hope that I could sit on one of the horses. But they actually got me and um, they grabbed me and they had these big wooden feed bins with a big lid on and they put me in a hessian bag and... And then they put me in this bin and and closed the lid, so I couldn't I couldn't get out until they had they had a good laugh and they um, said then that uh, you know got me out and let me get home. But it was probably about quarter to six, and I remember I got a flogging that night because I was late home, and Dad wouldn't believe why it happened. So did you end up leaving home or were you thrown out? I was thrown out um, just before I turned 14. I uh, was going out to uh, these people that would live down the road to uh, brush their horses so they'd ho- hopefully give me a ride on them and clean some bridles for them. And uh, Dad came in and he said, before you go out to those bloody horses, he said, you can clean up the lounge room. And uh, I uh, went and got the carpet sweeper back in those days, you know, the ones that weren't electric. I started carpet sweeping and Dad came in and he said, I told you to vacuum the bloody lounge room. And I said, no, you didn't, Dad. You told me to clean up the lounge room. And because I answered him back, he knocked me down and... um, Knocked you down with his hand or his fist? His hand to start off with and slapped me down because I I answered him back. And then I got up and I looked him in the eye and I said, you told me to clean up the lounge room. And he knocked me down again and I got up again and uh, I kept getting up and looking him in the eye and saying, no, you didn't, you told me to clean up the lounge room. So that was my stubborn streak coming out and my defence mechanism of standing up for yourself. And... um, then he knocked me down. I was bleeding from the mouth. I was bleeding from the ear. And um, and he lifted his fist to hit me. And I said, you hit me again and you'll never see me again in your life. And he knocked me down and I just got up and said, you told me to clean up the lounge room. I turned around. I walked to the bedroom. I grabbed my school bag. I threw some clothes in it. And I started to walk towards the front door and and Mum was saying, Digger, don't, don't, don't. And uh, he actually grabbed me by the shoulder with one hand and opened the door, the screen door, pushed me out the screen door, put his foot in the middle of my back and kicked me down the steps. And um, I picked my stuff up and I went to a girlfriend's place who had uh, a horse and... Her parents were really, really nice to me. They always had been. I just went around there and I stayed there for a little while and then I got a... I worked in uh, Tom the Grocer at Calamunda and um, then I uh, got a job on a 
station, a sheep station in 30 miles out of Marble Bar in northwest Western Australia, 100 miles out of Port Hedland, uh, just as a Jillaroo. That's the hottest place in Australia there. Yeah, it was hot. It was really hot. And you were, what, 15 years old? Uh, yeah, yeah. And how long did you last up there? I, I didn't last that long, a few months, but it was hard. It was hard work. I, the manager of the station or the owner of the station, he used to get me to um, clean out the big round uh, water troughs, but he wouldn't undo the plug in the bottom. He'd always get me to bucket them out and scrub them out, and that could be in the heat of the day, so around 115 degrees Fahrenheit, sometimes hotter, sometimes around 110. I just remember I used to work so hard and the sweat would be running down my face and my body. And uh, then his wife went to Perth for a few weeks and... um, there was only him and myself for the station manager and the station manager's wife, who was an Indigenous lady, and um, she was lovely. She was a lovely person. And, um, yeah, he kept trying to get into my room at night. I used to have a sleep out, but he had a Doberman pincer dog and um, I had the dog in the room with me at night and uh, when he was rattling on the door handle, uh, the dog would be growling at him. So, yeah, um, I ended up leaving after that. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. You were telling me how you went up north for a while to the Pilbara to work up there as a Jillaroo, and then you joined the circus. What was your what was your role in the circus, Diane? It was it was an easy job to get actually. Um, Friends of mine took me down to the circus, a Soul Brothers circus, when it was at Cannington. They knew one of the men that was in the circus at that stage and we were in the caravan talking and I, I thought it was such an exciting sort of lifestyle that I just wanted to be part of anything that was exciting. So he said, oh, we can get you a job here, no worries at all. And then I started with them and to start off with they had me just at the tent entrance um, where you'd be giving people their tickets and they were teaching me how to ride the elephants, which was pretty easy because <laughs> they'd get the elephant to actually sort of lay lay down and you'd put your foot on their front leg and climb up over behind their ears. I was actually surprised at how prickly their hair was. Right, it's really bristly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And you'd have on a le- like a leotard and the feathers in the hair, the big headpiece and fishnet stockings and do the the big arm displays at different times when the elephants would do different tricks and things. I actually uh, was riding an elephant called Lena 
and she was lovely and Dolly was lovely, but they had a they had an elephant there called Minyak and he was a bit of a rebel. <laughs> a rebel elephant. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he wouldn't obey the rules. And then they started teaching me the descent rope, which was a lot easier than I actually thought it would be. And then the single trapeze and teach you how to do the different poses and, you know, how to push off from the swing so you look like you're, you're actually still standing on the swing but it's moving uh, sort of sideways up and down. But when you'd go from town to town, uh, you'd have to help water the horses, feed the horses, water the elephants. A bit frustrating when you have to walk from one end of the showground to the other to get a bucket of water and then after the elephant's had a drink and squirts the rest over its back and you still got to go back and get another one. Meanwhile, you were still doing rodeos. How did you disguise yourself in order to keep competing? Oh, look, I was just always tall and skinny and everyone thought I was a boy all the time. I'd get mistaken as a boy. They'd say, even when I was riding up the road, I'd have shorts and a little shirt on, obviously dressed like a, a girl and People would pull over and say, hey, boy, get that horse off the road. And when I was working in racing stables, people had come up uh, to look at their horse and they'd be talking to me for half an hour or so and say, (laughs) you know, are you going to be a jockey? And I'd say, no, no, because women weren't allowed to be jockeys at that stage. That's right, yeah. And um, I remember this day this man said to me, oh, well, it's been really good talking to you and he introduced himself and told me his name. He said, his name is such and such. I can't remember it now. But I said, my name's Diane Lucas. And he said, oh, 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 sorry, Diane. I thought you were a boy. So so what name did you use to compete with when you were trying to conceal your gender, Diane? Deet Lucas. Deet. Yeah. Deet Lucas. Because I thought, well, they won't be able to know whether I'm a male or a female and how were you eventually caught out? Well, I was at Northern Rodeo, early 70s, and I was busting to go to the toilet. And um, I couldn't go to the ladies' toilet because obviously I looked like so much like a boy. And I couldn't go to the men's toilet, obviously, because I was female. And, you know, you can't stand there, stand up to pee. So I've gone out the back behind one of the stock cattle trucks, the contractor's cattle trucks, big semi it was. I've had a squat sort of out the back behind the semi-trailer because there was nobody out there around there at that stage. And um, one of the, one of the uh, competitors walked around the front of the truck and saw me squatting. He got the shock of his life, did he? I think so, yeah. (laughs) And uh, I nearly wet my pants trying to pull them up. (laughs) And he went back to the judges and told the shoot boss, I wasn't a boy, I was a girl. So that's how I got busted. So then you met your first husband uh, while you were working in a shearing shed and you you had a son together. How long did that last for? Oh, only 12 months. It It was just incompatibility. So, you know... He was a good bloke. He wasn't, he wasn't a bad husband or anything. So then you did a, a stint overseas for a while and you landed in Greece. What kind of work did you find when you got to Greece? Um, to start off with, uh, when I got to Athens, there was an advertisement in the paper that um, they wanted disco dance or dancers 
to go overseas. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a great way to travel. So I went for the interview and they passed me for that and um, said, yes, they'd employ me. And then we um, did a couple of nights at Piraeus dancing, um, one one night at Plaka, and then uh, we were supposed to be flying to Florida. And what were those people like who offered you the job? Well, he was a Greek man named Christos and she was a, a New Zealand woman named Annette. Anyway, the night before we were due to fly out, I was sharing a villa with these other girls and... Um, he, him and Annette came around in the morning and said to us that plans had changed, that we'd actually got a job in Iran. Iran, that's, that's quite a different place to, to Florida. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I'd met a man the night before or two nights before at Piraeus because our job was to sit and talk to the customers and get the customers to buy you a drink and for every drink that they bought you, you got commission. But I was actually allergic to alcohol, always have been. So what they'd do would either give me a little bit of black tea in the bottom of a glass and add lemonade to it. And this night, this man that worked at the oil rigs, I'm sitting there talking to him and and we sat there till after the nightclub closed talking and he was telling me that there's no alcohol or any clubs or anything like that in Iran. So he he basically, I was all clued up on it. So when Christos came to pick us up and then said that plans had changed, we're going to Iran, that, that rang the alarm bells for me. So I actually said to the girls, something doesn't feel right here, Um, I'm going to go and check. So I went into the Australian consulate and they had not uh, had any contracts lodged with them and they said that 18 European girls had gone missing to a description of the same people with the same um, agenda basically. Oh, is this human sex trafficking we're talking about now, is it? Yeah. So in between time, Christos and Annette had come around and they said, where's Diane? And the girls said, oh, she went into the consulate to check the contracts. And they said, oh, we've got to go now. And they left and they never actually came back. So by the time the federal police or the Greek police got me back to the villa, They'd been and gone and never to be seen that I know of again. So we actually just scraped out of that one by the skin of our teeth. So, so they disappeared instead of you, which was, a, yeah, yeah. which was a better result. So you moved back to Perth after that creepy experience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, met another man, you got married. How quickly did your second marriage go downhill, Diane? He was, he was uh, great when we were dating but once we got married, he uh, did a complete turnaround. He ended up being um, very, very abusive emotionally, physically. It had totally sucked the life out of me. He was insanely jealous. I was um, afraid to answer the door. He'd come home drunk at three o'clock in the morning and be abusing me. One night he came home when I was eight months pregnant and um, came up to the room. He got home 2.33 o'clock in the morning. 
drunk as, and he grabbed me by the foot and dragged me out. It was the 16th of August and it was the middle of winter in Perth. It was freezing. He dragged me out of bed by the foot and down the hallway with me kicking, trying to get away. But he was very tall and very strong and I, I couldn't get away from him. He dragged me down the hallway, picked me up at the front door, threw me out the front door and I had nothing on but a, a purple nylon nighty, and um, he locked the door behind me. It was lucky that weekend in the way that um, Mum had come and got Colin to take him down to the farm for the weekend, so Colin wasn't in the house. But there was so much trauma in that marriage. I got to the stage where someone someone rang the front doorbell. I I wouldn't open the doorbell. I'd peek through the curtain to see how it was. And if it was a man, I'd never open the door because there'd always be a fight about his jealousy about me having an affair and playing up and it was all it was all just going on in his head. I'd been really sick. I had an ectopic pregnancy that burst and I nearly died. I was in intensive care that night and uh, I remember hearing the doctors say, you know, she's got a 50-50 chance of living through the night and he said... Um, Oh, okay, and then came to the bedside and he was dressed in a suit and I said to him, you look really nice. And he said, yeah, he said, I'm going out because I hate hospitals. And just just like the click of fingers, I thought, I'm going to get well and I'm going to leave you. So that was what motivated me to leave. So how did you make your escape from this man? I had a horse and he was a beautiful horse I'd I'd probably only bought him about 10 weeks before and there was this woman that wanted to buy him and she travelled to the royal shows all over Australia trying to find this Anglo-Arab horse that was really... He was uh, 16 one hands high, which is a high for that breed. So you sold him? So I sold him and um, I paid whatever bills were in my name and then I bought one adult fare to Queensland, one child fare to Queensland, and my daughter was free because she was still a baby in arms. She was two years of age. And so you went to Cairns. Is that because it was as far away from Perth as you could possibly go? Yeah, that, that was as far as I could get. So I just knew that my life had to get better no matter what what happened. It was going to be better because I'd meet new people, I'd make new friends I'd just make a life for myself. It had to be better than being abused all the time. So how did you get back into the rodeo game in Queensland, Diane? Yeah, I uh, went to the rodeo and met the old cowboys and I just wanted to ride again. So I got fit at the gym in Innisfail. I was on a really good diet, still super skinny. And then I, um, I, I went up to Mareeba Rodeo one day and uh, there was this, they, these bulls were coming out. They were just station bulls. They weren't contract bulls. I went behind the chutes and the adrenaline started rushing and I went upstairs and I said, asked them if I could ride and they said, well, yeah, if you, if you pay a day insurance fee, which was $20, you can. I probably had about $30 left in my purse and I paid the $20 and I didn't have the right gear, so I, I walked 
past all these cowboys that are sitting down behind the chutes getting their gear ready and I saw a guy that looked about my size and had about my size feet and um, I got pretty big feet, you know, size 10 ladies. I just asked him if I could borrow his boots and a pair of jeans and he said, why? And I said, because I want to ride one of these bulls. And he said, yeah, I've got to see this. And what was the bull like you were allocated? It was it was good. There was a few guys helping me in the chute, tying me down. And um, it was a station bull, no, nowhere near as big as the contract bulls are, but still, still pretty wild. And when you get on the back of the bull and you're being, you're riding for however many seconds that you can stay on for, what what's going on while you're being tossed around so violently on on the back of this bull? Don't well, you you sort of black out on the background noise because you're just concentrating on what you're doing. It's not that you're aware of 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 what's going on. What's going through your mind when you're on the back of one of those? Well, bulls? actually, when they open the chute, they just explode underneath you. It was like. Everything went black and there was almost like a, a streak of lightning that visually went through my brain. I remember thinking, wow, I'm going to have to really hang on here because of the power, but wasn't aware of listening to anything that the announcer was saying or the people or the crowd or whatever. It was just uh, probably full-on concentration and... The adrenaline rush was amazing. I'm a, an adrenaline junkie. Um, I did skydiving back in the <laughs> 20s. So I just, I love the adrenaline. So around about this time, you finally met your, your soulmate, your husband, Peter, and, and married him. How has your body fared, though, now, Diana, after all these years, after decades of riding bulls and broncos? I'm a, I, I did get busted up a little bit, not on bulls, but probably on show jumpers more. You had spinal surgery and there was a mishap on the operating table and that meant that you've lost a kidney and you, you're on dialysis. I, I didn't lose a kidney. Um, the, in the surgery, I had adhesions um, pull the uh, underneath part of my bowel and that wasn't checked after the surgery and they closed me up and um, a day and a half, two days later, I had a raging temperature and ended up with septicemia. They raced me up to ICU. Um, The surgery to repair the holes in my bowel, put on a stoma bag, did a tracheotomy, put me into a coma for three and a half weeks, 71 days on life support, 80 days in ICU and another two months learning how to walk and sit up, roll over, eat, drink, swallow, all that. So it was pretty pretty hard and traumatic and that left me with kidney failure, the antibiotics that they use to try and kill the septus. You sound, for all of that, you sound pretty upbeat, Diane, and and I wonder, as I mentioned at the start, if you have a way of managing fear, given that you have been in the past quite ready to jump on the back of a bucking bull, which is quite frankly a terrifying prospect, I think, for 99% of people, and absolutely myself included. I can hardly even watch that <laughs> take place, let alone contemplate the idea of doing it myself, Diane. Do you, do, do you feel fear or, or do you just manage it very well? I do feel fear, but 
I hate being afraid, so I just go and do it to overcome the fear. And I've always done that. I was afraid of heights. That's why I did skydiving. So you do those things not because you're not afraid, but because you are afraid. Yeah, yeah. The minute I feel fear, I have to do it because I can't stand being afraid. You hate it, you said. Hate it, hate it. Hate that feeling of fear in my chest. So I challenge it. How do you walk towards it? Do you tell yourself to do it? Yeah, I just say, no, you need to do this and just do it. I don't overthink things. I just go and do them. And how are you as an adrenaline junkie enjoying a quiet, happy life these days, Di? Yeah, I'm happy because I've done the things I've done and I look back and I've got my money's worth. So, you know, it's no big deal to me. It's just, to me, it was just something I wanted to do and made happen. If you want something to happen, you've got to make it happen. You can't just wait for... I hope and wish and do it. Just go and do it. You remind me of the kid that goes into the showground and goes straight away for the wildest and most terrifying and most intense ride that's there. Yeah, I used to be like that, but <laughs> the last time I tried that, I I was spent the whole time on the zipper, whatever it's called, and I was dry reaching the whole time. So I'm not going to do that again. I spent I spent my daughter and and so all her mates were there, or not all, but some of her mates were there, and they had me propped up against a 44-gallon drum, which was a rubbish bin while they were all dead. I was green. No, I'm done with that. <laughs> Diana, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and hearing about your extraordinary, wild, crazy life. Thank you so much. No worries, Richard. Good chat, mate. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.